0: Bruce Cook is honored to have you join his conversations with people committed to talking with heart and brain functions in full operating gear. No spin, no agenda, just authentic conversation on just about anything. Welcome to the Bruce Cook Conversation. Fighting human trafficking with Dr. Sandra Morgan of the Global Center for Women and Justice. Then Dr. Yasir Jassam of the Hogue Pickup Family Neuroscience Center on Long Hauler Complications for COVID. The Bruce Cook Conversation with your host, Bruce Cook, trending now. Here's your host, Bruce Cook, brought to you by the Pickup Family Neurosciences Institute at Hogue. Good Sunday evening, ladies and gentlemen, I'm Bruce Cook, and it is time for the conversation. We've got an hour together from now at 6.33 until 7.30. We're running a little bit behind tonight due to the Angels game running late. But it's always an honor to get a chance to speak to Southern California here on Angels Radio. A few years ago, there was a subject that is now really important in the forefront of of the American dialogue that was basically not talked about, not understood, not known about. In fact, it was, it was almost taboo. It was shoved under the rug. The subject, human trafficking. Today, today, that subject is widely discussed. It is a serious topic. It is not just pushed under the rug anymore. It is a problem across all of America rich neighborhoods poor neighborhoods it doesn't matter it is also a worldwide scourge it has come into the forefront because of the dedication and the passion of certain individuals who have made it made it their work to get the word out one of those people is coming on the radio tonight in a few minutes she is here in southern california she is a professor at Vanguard University. She is also the director of an organization at Vanguard called the Global, Global Center for Women and Justice. Her name is Dr. Sandra Morgan. I'm honored that she's been on our show before, and she's coming on again tonight. And what's really wonderful about it is that Sandra, who was part of a presidential forum on human trafficking... Has made a huge difference. She is one person, one human being who, for the last many years, has stood up and screamed at the top of the hillsides that something needs to be done. Moreover, she has rallied experts, she's rallied psychologists and law enforcement, she's rallied anybody she could to join in the cause to get the word out to make a difference. Yesterday, Saturday night, she held what is called the Priceless event, which has been going on for a while under her tutelage. And it's a, it's a conference, and it's, a, it's more than a conference. It's a seminar, and it's a party, and it's bringing people together of like-mindedness that believe in making that change. Let's find out what happened at Priceless, and let's check in with Sandra and find out what we're doing to, to stop human trafficking here in Orange County and in Los Angeles and in San Diego and everywhere this radio station is heard. Stay with me, people. Let's say hello to Dr. Sandra Morgan. Sandra. Hey, it's so good to hear from you, Bruce. It's always good to hear from you. You're my hero. I know that word is uh, thrown around a lot, like world class and a bunch of other catchphrases. But you are a hero, Sandra Morgan. You make things happen. Talk to me about Priceless. What happened last night?
1: Oh, Priceless was wonderful. And I love that you focused on the educational aspect of it. But we did have a party. We had a silent auction. We raised $200,000 to keep the work of the Global Center for Women and Justice going. But we celebrated victims who have been rescued, and we looked at what it's going to take to do what you just said, stop human trafficking right here.
0: Well, you've come a long way. I mean, a few years ago when you came on this radio station, I have to tell you, as much as I was impressed by everything you were doing, I thought to myself, and I didn't say it on the air, I said, how is this woman going to make this stop? How is she going to stop this when it's going on in Asia and Africa and in London and in Timbuktu, let alone in Orange County? How is she going to make this stop? But guess what? You are making it stop. Talk to me about what you're doing with law enforcement and with education.
1: Well, I, I love how you described me as screaming at the top of my lungs. I think that's My big job is to be a loud voice and call people to join this fight. Yesterday at Priceless, I shared um, a story about warriors. You know that in our State Department, um, the Office on Human Trafficking is called the Office to Monitor and Combat Human Trafficking. It's a fight. And so... I learned that in Africa, the Maasai warriors greet each other with this phrase, how are the children? So you're a Maasai warrior, I'm a Maasai warrior. Greet me, Bruce, ask me.
0: How are the children, Sandra?
1: All the children are fine. That's the appropriate response from the Maasai warriors. But what we know right now is all the children are not fine and we have to do something about it. So we're launching a research institute within the Global Center for Women and Justice. And one of our first projects is to figure out how to do prevention. And I think I mentioned to you before that I get very frustrated with people who think that awareness is prevention. It's not. You know that if you eat candy, your teeth are going to rot right out of your head. But if you don't do something about it, um, knowing about it won't keep it from happening. And so yesterday we gave away toothbrushes because we want people to start thinking about what is it going to take to prevent human trafficking. And we start with our children, like, like the Maasai warriors, because if our children are fine, our families are fine. If our children are fine, they don't grow, turn at 18, and they're in horrible circumstances that they can't walk away from. And in the last Orange County Human Trafficking Task Force report, There were 357 victims served right here in Orange County, and over 100 were children. So it's it's something we have to do.
0: Are those numbers, do you think those numbers are low? Do you think there are many more that we don't know about? What would you guess would be a better real number?
1: Well, and it would just be a guess, which is why we're going to do the Research Institute, so we can get better numbers. At Priceless, our keynote speaker was Nicole Sudam, who is the OC Goodwill CEO. And she talked, she told the story of Angela, who said, I was invisible. People didn't see me. And we had Shima who was the very first child victim of human trafficking discovered in Orange County in an upscale, gated community in 2002. She was a child slave brought here from Egypt. Now, 19 years later, she has U.S. citizenship. She's married. She has a family. We gave her an award yesterday for her advocacy, for her strength and dignity, And what she said to us is someone in the neighborhood saw something that didn't look right and called, and that's how she was rescued. But while she was a slave in that home, she saw others who were in the same circumstances that she was, and they weren't rescued. They were invisible. We don't know how many are out there that we have not found. And we need to do a better job of finding them.
0: How can people live with this? How can a family in an upscale, gated neighborhood have an Egyptian girl slave and live with that? And go to work every day and drive their fancy SUV to the park and take a trip to Disneyland and go to church on Sunday. How can they do that and have this happen in their house? How, what is the mentality of this? How do you change that? Well, that part
1: is, is for the criminologist to study. What I want to study is how to keep kids like Shima, kids like little girls and boys, young people who are commercially sexually exploited right here in Orange County, in um, hotel rooms and upscale brothels. And what we have to do, do you know that with um, the pandemic, a lot of things moved online. And so one of the things that I'm concerned about is access, to our kids through the internet and there are tremendous resources out there to do prevention to keep our kids safe from those exploiters who would reach out to our kids on their own internet in their own homes and so we want to be like the keeping your kids from getting cavities we want to be able to know how to protect our kids and then practice that, and I think that's the biggest challenge that we have. We have programs. National Center for Missing and Exploited Children have produced Net Smart curriculum. You can practice with your kids every day, but in our schools, the California legislators have only required mandated prevention once between 7th and 8th grade, and once between ninth and 12th. Well, I, I think I mentioned to you before, I want to take toothbrushes to our legislators, to the State Assembly, to the State Senate, and say, here, I have three toothbrushes for you, and you can brush your teeth this week and again in two years. Right. Because that's, <laughs> that's the kind of prevention that you've passed. And we need prevention that is every single day that starts, you know, I started teaching my kid to brush their teeth before they could talk, before they could put together a full sentence. That's the kind of prevention that we need to keep our kids safe in today's culture.
0: Let me ask you a tough question regarding that. Are parents capable of it?
1: Well, Now, that you're always a good person to have a conversation with. Yes, and in fact, um, parents who are very active, I just did an interview on the Ending Human Trafficking podcast with Elizabeth Smart, and you know her story. She was one of the few that were actually abducted, and so we were talking about prevention, and she said, To keep your kids safe, you talk to them about it every single day. But, and I've done lots of training. We started a new program through the Global Center called Smart Mamas, Safe Kids. And those moms know exactly what to do every single day to raise kids that will be safe online.
0: On the flip side... Let me interrupt for a second. On the flip side, yeah. on the flip side though, have you studied also the psychological effects of warning your young children over and over again every day to watch out that they could be snatched?
1: Oh, no, no, no. See, we don't have to teach them that we don't have to warn them. We just have to teach them how to be safe. For instance, one of the things that I think is really important for parents is you don't tell your kids, you have to hug this guy, Uncle Johnny, who just came. He's not even really an uncle. He works with your dad, but we think that we want them to feel like family. So we make our four-year-old hug him. Our four-year-old needs to know that they have personal space and they get to say no. Okay. They don't have to give that up. And that makes more resilient, safer kids. Um Kids who are told to be quiet um, are are actually, in some ways, not as safe. We want our kids to know it's okay to yell if somebody comes too close to you. It's okay to hit somebody if somebody grabs you. Um, you get to be to protect your space. I grew up with a dad and this is way before all of this kind of stuff, but my dad used to tell me that somebody else's rights ended where my nose began. And so my space was my space. And I think we can safely and appropriately practice um, protection and do that kind of prevention from the time children are really young, go on the endinghumantrafficking dot org website and listen to the conversation Elizabeth Smart and I had last
0: week. We're going to take a break, Sandra, but when we come back, maybe you can give us a few highlights of that uh, to lead people to your website. Great to okay. have you on tonight. We've got so much more to discuss on the conversation. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm Bruce Cook. Happy that you're listening tonight at Angels Radio and getting to know Sandra Morgan better. Stay with us. We'll be back in one
2: minute.
0: Angels Radio. AM
2: 830. At the Pickup Family Neurosciences Institute, the Hogue Epilepsy Program is accredited by the National Association of Epilepsy Centers as a Level 4 Epilepsy Center. This means that our experts provide the highest level care for patients with complex epilepsy. Our patient-centered approach to epilepsy treatment combined with state-of-the-art technology, including robotics and laser ablation, ensure the best possible outcomes for our patients. To learn more or for an evaluation, call 949-966-0243 or visit hoag.org forward slash epilepsycare. If you don't want to see me a
0: me? and we're back ladies and gentlemen I'm Bruce Cook with Sandra Morgan Dr. Morgan tonight on Angels radio we got a tough subject we're going through on the conversation tonight we're talking about human trafficking if you're just tuning in. And Dr. Morgan, just before the commercial break, mentioned uh, that she had a very special conversation with Ms. Smart, and I wanted to know a little bit about what was discussed. Sandy, can you fill us in a little bit?
1: Yes, we do the Ending Human Trafficking podcast. You can find it on whatever app you use to listen to podcasts, or you can just go to the website, Ending Human EndingHumanTrafficking.com. Dot org, Elizabeth Smart, who was um, recovered after being abducted and abused at 14, tells people, be alert. When you see something, don't be afraid to call. If you're wrong, that's okay. And at Priceless yesterday... We gave an honorary award to Shima, who was the very first child rescued here in Orange County. And she said the same thing. If someone hadn't made a phone call, she wouldn't have been rescued. Now, Elizabeth Smart is a young mom, and she wants her kids to be safe. And we talked about the prevention strategy of talking to your kids, every day about their personal space and making sure our kids understand how to be safe publicly and private and on the internet and those kind of resources are all available to you as a parent
0: the internet is probably the most scary thing for parents because technology is so advanced today and most parents don't have the skills of their kids and and don't always know the extent to which the children are exploring the world electronically. Can we really get our arms around that and stop the predators on the Internet? I mean, this is a discussion that has been going on for a long time. It's been going on in Congress. It's been going on at the big Internet companies. But nobody really seems to have a handle on it. Where do you stand? What do you know?
1: I am very positive about the future. Our government and law enforcement have developed new programs to find what's called CSAM, which is um, commercial sexual abuse images, online material. And so they're, they're shutting down those people. But at the same time, we're developing Internet safety programs like NetSmart, dot org and you can practice with your kids every day and this is important not just when they're small but when they're teenagers they especially once they hit that age where they're on social media and I'm I'm just going to tell you mom dad aunt uncle grandma um if you shut down the internet in your house it's okay because they have friends with internet
0: They're going to
1: roll their eyes at you. So we want them to be um, knowledgeable and know that if some guy offers them $200 to take off a piece of clothing, that what they're supposed to do is shut it down and report it. That's what's supposed to happen instead of trying to keep it a secret so no one knows. And the earlier we start teaching our kids how to handle themselves On the internet the safer they're going to be.
0: That gets into a whole other realm of discussion also about sexuality and youth because a lot of kids, male and female, at those tender ages between 12, 13 to 15, 16 are questioning, they're exploring, there are secrets that they're thinking about and gossiping with their friends and so when that predator shows up that temptation to take off your blouse for $200 or whatever it is, they might think, well, what could it hurt? So you're right. If the parents are really involved, then maybe that bad thing won't get worse. And I
1: really want to drive one more point home. Here in Orange County, remember I talked about how many children were recovered here from commercial sexual exploitation. 63% of those kids were our own Orange County children. Very important point. Yes, and 90% of them had prior abuse reports.
0: Oh, boy. So when
1: we think about keeping our kids safe, our definition has to go back to what we started with, Bruce, that that Maasai warrior um, greeting. How are the children... All the children are fine. But my answer right now, and it's why what I do is important and I'm passionate and I have to keep on doing it because my answer is all the children are not fine. And I have to figure out how we're going to protect all the children in Orange County.
0: Talk a bit about what law enforcement here is doing. Anything new that you can share?
1: Um, I am so excited. The Orange County Human Trafficking Task Force has a long track record of um, investigation, but it's the tip of the iceberg. Our juvenile justice, we have a special court called Grace Court specifically to help these kids. It's a collaborative court because many of them, just like I just read this brand new statistic, 90 percent had prior abuse reports. So just rescuing them and taking them back to mom and dad isn't going to work.
0: And not only is it not going to work, it might make things worse.
1: So that's, um, and we give awards every year at Priceless. And this year's, big priceless individual award went to Nicole Stratman, who is the senior social services supervisor and coordinator for those kids and the collaborative courts. And she is working diligently to make sure that not one child is overlooked and building not just a small little unit, but a community community. She's been my education ally. During COVID, we carpooled. We would go teach in the rain. We taught online. We went to outside events because it takes the whole community so that when we see each other and we say, how are the children, we can confidently say all of the children in our community are fine.
0: And on that my dear Sandra Morgan, we need to end our conversation tonight. I want to leave you with one more question for the next time we get together. I want to talk about what happens to these rescued kids after they're rescued. What kind of therapy do they need? What kind of help do they get beyond in order to uh hopefully have a decent life? You shared a little bit about the lady that was honored at Uh, your event yesterday and how she has turned her life around and has a family and a career, I want to hear more about that. So you've got to come back soon, Sandra Morgan.
1: You know, I will. And anybody who wants more information, you can go to GCWJ.org and we will respond.
0: Perfect way to end all the best. Good night. Good luck always. And we'll talk again.
1: All right. Thank you, Bruce.
0: Ladies and gentlemen, I'm Bruce Cook. It's The Conversation tonight. We're going to take a break, but when we come back, we're going to switch gears. I've got another great guest for you. A lot to learn tonight. Stay with me. Angels Radio AMA 30. K-L-A-A,
2: Orange County, Los Angeles, and Inland Empire,
0: where Angels baseball lives.
2: Pickup Family Neurosciences Institute at Hogue is ranked in the top 1% in the nation by U.S. News and World Report. It provides world-class care through multidisciplinary expert teams, each focusing on specific disorders of the brain and spine, such as stroke, aneurysms, brain tumors, Parkinson's disease, cognitive disorders, including Alzheimer's, epilepsy, back pain, as well as spinal cord issues, addiction medicine, and sleep disorders. Our renowned experts offer the best evidence-based care, state-of-the-art technology, and the latest clinical research, all focused on the individual patient. Our stroke program was the first in Orange County named as a Certified Comprehensive Stroke Center, and our Brain Tumor Program is the largest in Orange County and among the top volume programs in the Western United States. Hiccup Family Neurosciences Institute, Compassionate Care, Clinical Excellence, Creative Intelligence. To learn more, call 949-516-9075 or visit hoag.org forward slash neuroinstitute.
0: Asking for help in life takes bravery. Women addicted to alcohol and drugs know this very well. Most suffer silently while their lives fall apart. Their children and their families in crisis. For more than 40 years in Southern California, New Directions for Women has helped addicted women recover in a nationally recognized treatment facility in Costa Mesa. Their doors are wide open. It just takes the first step. Call New Directions for Women. The number is 888-786-0509. Again, 888-786-0509. You can also visit them at www.newdirectionsforwomen.org. New Directions for Women. They know recovery.
3: Dirty
0: looks from your mother Never seen you in a dress that color No, it's a special look Good Sunday night, everybody. It's Bruce Cook. It's the Conversation on Angels Radio KLAA. Thank you so much for staying with me tonight. We have a great second guest on the show. I'm very excited to introduce him to you. But before I do, I want to ask you if you're among the so many people that are worried about what comes after COVID? What if you get COVID? What if you survive it? What if it's a bad case of the flu? And then a week later, a month later, you're still having memory loss. Two months later, you have some sort of paralysis. What happens? What does medicine know about the after, the after effects and the long-term Cause and effect of the COVID disease. Science is working diligently to find out. Scientists all around the world are working on this problem, both in terms of stopping the spread now and what will come next. If you here in Orange County or Los Angeles are listening tonight and it is something that is of interest, perhaps you are even worried about it, we may have some answers for you. I'm going to introduce you to. A neurologist, Dr. Yasir Jasam, he is with the Hoag Institute of Neurology at Hoag Hospital, the Hiccup, I'm sorry, the Pickup Institute of Neurology, forgive me. And Dr. Yasam is involved in creating a post COVID brain health clinic to deal with all of these different things that may or may not be happening. Dr. Yassam, are you on the line? Hi there, Bruce. Yes, I am. So good to have you again. Last time you were on, I had tons of calls after the show asking how to reach you. Uh, You struck a nerve. And tonight, as I've just introduced, we're exploring what happens next. Tell me about this clinic that you're going to uh, get involved with or start, this brain health clinic. What is it?
3: Right. So, uh, first of all, thanks for having me again. Um, well, this time I'm talking about an, a subject that is evolving. So we're all learning, in um, opposed to last time I talked to you about multiple sclerosis, a subject that has been studied for years. Um, with COVID-19, we're just beginning to learn what is this virus doing to our bodies. I have actually started looking after patients, seeing them in the hospital when they're very sick with the virus. And I've seen neurological complications during the infection. Um, so we saw strokes, we saw seizures, we saw inflammation of the spinal cord causing paralysis. We saw what they call Guillain-Barre, a form of neuropathy. We saw those at the beginning. But now we started months and months and months after the first wave hit us, to see in some people with what we call long collars or lingering effects. very interesting topic and it's not the first time we see that with infections there's there's a long history about chronic symptoms after sustaining some sort of an infection mostly in viral infections. So uh, that story actually goes back even during the Spanish flu pandemic there was a very similar story when people developed chronic fatigue syndrome, which is another, Form of lingering effect after an infection, but with covid, my interest started to go into these cases when many patients, actually even friends and and, and relatives start to express some unusual symptoms long after the infection what sort of- what sort of
0: symptoms doctor just what sort of symptoms?
3: Well, the most common they have been um, to do what we call a mental fog, where people feel kind of some sort of a confusion and cognitive dysfunction. Some of them describe this feeling of fatigue that is persistent and inability to do much. There is actually the same report that's coming from Europe uh, that we, we heard in the wave before us, and you can see that coming from Italy and Spain, very similar stories. But there's also, interestingly, some very significant increase in anxiety and depression symptoms. There are actually a chunk of patients who develop new anxiety and depression. Um, Some people have new headaches. um, Others will have some sort of neuropathies and tingling. Most um, strikingly, a lot of patients will come and tell you about their smell and taste, something that has now been known during the acute phase where the patient is infected. And even after that, by months, and it takes a long time. And we were learning step by step about these, thinking that there must be a way that this virus is making its way into the brain. And and we're thinking now, we know now that some of this is making um, a port through the nasal cavity and it climbs up into the brain. Now, it's also... an evolving interesting story when you learn about the inflammatory findings in the brain and that's where my job has started to become or to intersect with this because i'm a neuroimmunologist and i deal more with inflammation of the brain and surprisingly a lot of these reports now showing that there's some inflammation that goes on in the brain after the virus is gone by many many weeks and months and in some instances you actually don't see inflammation, but you see some damage that the virus has done to the brain. Whether or not that was the virus itself or the inflammation caused by the virus, we still don't know that yet.
0: How serious is it? How lasting is it? It's only been a couple of years that we've been dealing with this uh, terrible situation. So, as you said, science is evolving. What do you know at this point in terms of the long range? Well, that's a fantastic question,
3: and the short answer is we don't know. We see patients who have it for a week. We see patients who have it for a year. And as kind of a common rule, the patients who got it worse, as in who are admitted to the hospital or to the ICU or were intubated, might get their symptoms to last longer, and the damage might be
0: more more. With the with the blain with the blain, I can't talk. You've got me so worried. With the blain with the brain inflammation, uh-huh. particularly uh-huh. Right. when it when it's when it when the inflammation recedes, do the problems so go actually, away or do they stay or is there damage permanent it. damage? I think you should you
3: should uh, you should probably come and work with us because this is the exact question we're looking at. We don't know. We truly don't know if the inflammation is tied directly to the symptoms and if the inflammation goes down, will the symptoms go down? Actually, this is one study that I'm interested in and I'm trying to recruit enough interest to do. We're trying to see if there is inflammation evidence in the brain and in the blood and if that actually ties up to the symptoms. Um, we know from work from other colleagues in, in, in other places um, in, in the East Coast and also here is that there is evidence of inflammation and antibodies forming against the brain and some inflammatory chemicals in the CSF, which is the fluid that, that um, circulates around the brain and the spinal cord. And there is actually some work that's coming out now to show that when you study the brain of patients with COVID under the microscope, you can see some some small evidence of damage in the areas of the smell, in the areas of attention, in the areas of sleep. And that's all very interesting, but we're trying now to put all these pieces together to come up with an answers, and first, can we put the fire out? And if we do so, will that improve the symptoms, or there is some damage that will be sustainable? What I can tell you is that the furthest, we go away from the infection, the better the symptoms get, which argues for some reversible mechanism there.
0: Is there anything that you can share with the listening audience about conditions that would lead certain certain ethnic or uh, population groups into more danger than others? I mean, we all have been told ad nauseum through this that that people of color are suffering more uh, in certain areas with the COVID anyway. What about these after effects? Do they affect people of a certain uh, genetic background more than others, women more than men, younger more than old, black more than white? What do you know about that?
3: Right. So, so far, it looks like the most common factors that you see in these patients who suffer from these are the patients who are elderly, so... um, tend to have an advanced age. They have comorbidities, so they have already some respiratory diseases, diabetes, or their immune is pressed, and they kind of suffer the most. If you end up in the ICU being intubated or you have a prolonged hospital stay, then you get it more. So far, the demographic of this, whether or not it affects more people of certain genetic backgrounds, not very clear, just because that the reports about these whole long haulers are coming from all over the world, so you see, northern Europeans, southern Europeans, you see people from South America, reports from China, so it's, it's actually quite universal yet, and 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 all we have is about um, most of the determinants is what did you have before getting COVID, age must be a factor. And also, how did your COVID infection go? I can tell you, though, that there is actually a chunk of patients that I see, they're young and healthy, and they're still suffering from so, certain um, amount of dysfunction after the disease. So it, it's definitely there is more to just um, age and severity of infection, but I don't think we have enough data now to make that judgment.
0: This is off. This is a bit off-topic in terms of your expertise, but it's the in the general news uh, today. Uh, I'm sure you heard, or or this week you've heard that the FDA has suggested that we don't need a booster shot unless we're over 65 or we have uh, a preconceived, uh, a predetermined condition that requires it. Where do you stand on that? What do you think?
3: Well, it's a very good question. The problem with this booster dose discussion, it depends on the immunity of the public. So I think if there was everyone was doing just fine and we don't see we were not seeing surges of the infection, we wouldn't be having that discussion. And um, I think the problem that everyone is trying to deal with now is how long our immunity is going to last against the virus. We know, for example, from the flu shot, that this lasts you know, for a few months, and then, you know, every year you have to repeat that because there are new emerging variants. I personally can tell you that I, I'm seeing rates of pre-infection, whether or not these patients can, were vaccinated a long time ago, but I see them also because I do MS, and a lot of patients who are immunosuppressed actually get infected even though they're vaccinated because there are some medications that prevent you from having a good response to the vaccine so uh, i am in favor of that if if the patient is at risk of infection and their vaccine didn't work well the first time there should be a system to tell if your vaccine worked or not and based on that i think a booster dose should be
0: suggested well of
3: course you know that's that's still that is still open for significant debate as you know
0: well, you know what? I think you actually answered that question at the very beginning when you said, where you talked about the flu shot. A flu shot is not a permanent situation. It is a several month protection and then you have to do it again. So why would we, Correct. why as the public, and I'm certainly not a scientist or a doctor, but why would we think that it would not be the same with a COVID shot? Uh, I think for any virus it's the same because your immunity
3: would weaken with time, but certain e you know, each and every vaccine in this uh, that we receive would need a booster at some point in time. That's that's undebatable, and that's kind of based on other diseases as well. It, it the question is when, not if. I think yes, a booster is needed. The question is when, and whether or not it has to be only a significant, like a portion of people. I'm not quite sure. I would be in favor to to offer anyone who's at risk a booster. I think it's it's it should be offered for people who is at risk of infection.
0: Absolutely. Good point. Listen, uh, doctor, we have to take a break, uh, but we've got a, I got a bunch more questions for you. So you better just sit there and, and uh, stay put. You can't go back to your family yet. And uh, we're going to take a quick break and be back in about a minute. So ladies and gentlemen, don't go away. We've got so much more to, to talk about and to learn about. We'll be right back. Radio, AM
2: 830. As part of the Pickup Family Neurosciences Institute, Hogue's NeuroSpine program offers innovative methods to reduce pain, inflammation, and improve mobility safely and effectively, often without surgery. Should you need surgery, Hogue is a leader with minimally invasive techniques, 3D imaging, and robotics to restore your golf swing or your swing dance. Many of our patients go home in just a few hours walking the very next day. Call our dedicated nurse navigator at 949-537-2931 for an evaluation or visit Hogue.org forward slash spine help. Angels Radio,
0: AMA 30. 24-7 magic in the air. What a better way to lead in to the rest of our show, ladies and gentlemen. Bruce Cook here. The conversation tonight with Dr. Yasir Jassam from the Pickup Neurological Institute at Hoag Hospital here in Orange County. And we're talking about COVID and we're talking about the after effects of COVID. We're talking about the brain. Dr. Jassam, I want to ask you, do you handle children in your practice? And if so... How does this all fit in or tie in or deal with people, young, young people? Unfortunately,
3: Bruce, um, the youngest I see in my clinic is 18 as an adult neurologist. And um, fortunately, I, I actually don't see that many um, in that age group who would come with post-COVID symptoms. But again, the the long term probably hasn't emerged yet for these Um, children because we saw the newest variants affecting them more often than the older ones. So probably in months to come, we might start seeing this. And I'm very interested to see what um, child neurologists and child psychologists will start finding if there's any
0: link between
3: children who get infected with COVID and, you know, learning performance, for example.
0: Well, I'm glad that you're not having a surge in that, I, I have to say. But I did want to know if, uh, if children uh, have a whole different set of circumstances and problems, obviously they must, uh, but I think most of our listeners probably have no idea. And people, parents with young kids are becoming more and more concerned because they're hearing more and more about children being infected, even though supposedly... Things are safer in schools. Um, again, it's very confusing to people. There's so much back and That's forth. True. There's just so much I mean, back and forth. To me,
3: also, as, as a parent, you know that that concerns me myself. But, but you're right. It's um, it's um, you know we, we get different reports and things are very fluid. Still, we we see surges um, and downfalls every almost week, and and things are probably going into. Um, into different directions given a point of time. So it is a matter of we have to wait and see how it goes with this. But hopefully, what we hope one would hope for is that the um, infection rates in children will not be as severe and as bad in adults. And given the multiple um, mechanism a child, the brain has for what we call neuroelasticity, we won't see um, that lasting damage.
0: When I spoke with you briefly on the telephone before you came on air, I heard young children in the background. I assume it's your family. What are mm-hmm. you doing? What are you and your wife doing to protect your own kids and, te- and to teach them and to help them and deal with this situation?
3: Well, I think we're basically following all the guidance, and we did from day one. You know, from myself as a physician, uh, I I was you know kind of at higher risk because I was exposed when the when when the first wave hit. We go into the hospital seeing patients in the clinic, so we tried our best to wear masks and distance from other. Uh, people in public and when we go out in the public we try to quarantine when it when it was there was any concern washing hands all the time and whenever the vaccine came out um, we all got vaccinated and um, so uh, you know I did what I thought was the, the best I could uh, to prevent a myself to get affected and also for me to carry it to the rest of my family you know my my parents are elderly, and I have also um, other uh, people in my family who have uh, diseases and conditions. So I I became very cognizant of the fact that it could not only be be me, but I might be carrying the virus for other people. um, It was truly some unusual times.
0: Indeed. If I may, I want to ask you a tough question about, I don't know how old your children are, and, and maybe we can answer this not in terms of personal Experience, but there is great anxiety, debate, and even animosity over children being asked to wear masks. Where do you stand on that, as a physician?
3: Well, as a physician, I will say definitely because there's data to support the spread um, being much less when you wear a vaccine. Sorry, when you wear a mask, and that's. That's basically absolute science. We, we cannot debate that. The people who can argue um, on the other side is that how difficult to get a child to wear a mask. And that's that's a totally different subject. And I can talk to you as a parent that it might be more difficult I to convince them and I to get them to comply. So I, I hear both sides. But we know at the end of the day, we all have a responsibility somehow uh, to to stop this. We just have to make it stop the whole world had that responsibility and it's actually probably one of the first challenges the whole world faced together and there was no no chance to stop it unless everyone um, kind of worked together so unfortunately it's going to take again a lot of um, a lot of work to see how we did at the end but for now we just we just have to follow what we have and what we have says is that if if people wear masks, they're going to limit the spread of the infection.
0: Indeed, and on on that note, Doctor, we we end our conversation tonight. There's so much more I, I wish I could uh, ask you, but I'm going to have you come back again if you're willing. Uh, you're going to become my expert on this on this subject as we learn more. Thank you so much for your input tonight. Uh, I wish you the very best in your practice and and all that you're doing in this in this brain. Uh, health clinic and the research that you're doing, I know that it will produce positive results that will help a lot of people. So, with that, I say good night, Doctor, and I say good night to our audience tonight. And I thank you all for tuning into KLAA and the conversation. And we're back every Sunday night. So, join us again sometime for the Bruce Cook conversation live on Angels Radio. Good night.
2: Conversations <laughs> with a
0: You've been listening to the Bruce Cook Conversation. Hear the Bruce Cook Conversation on Sundays at 6 p.m. Pacific on AM 830 KLAA. And hear the podcasts of every show on Anchor, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Breaker, Pocket Casts, and Radio Public.